Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to this webinar at book discussion on Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security uh, by Jeffrey Mankoff. Jeffrey Mankoff is a distinguished research fellow at Institute for National Strategic Studies at the De National Defense University. Here is the book. Uh, congratulations, Jeff. Uh, for this um, really nicely researched, well-researched book, a comparative study. It's a very interesting comparative perspective on how imperial legacies of Russia, um, Turkey, now these days we have to start saying Turkey, and uh, Iran and China. Um, so uh, Dr. Mankoff makes very interesting comparisons uh, dissects very interesting um, sort of contrasts, allows us to uh, survey through the history of these nations, their past, imperial pasts, but more importantly, perhaps for this audience, how that past impacts uh, the foreign policies of these nations today, how they approach international relations, how they approach the international system, how they manage conflicts around their uh, borders within or across the border in neighboring nations, and how those are also related to some of the ethnicity questions and, um, and regime structure, etc. So, uh, Jeffrey, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and congratulations again on the book. Uh, I want to uh, ask you my first question. How did you come up with this idea? Why, why did you uh, decide to write a book on this topic? And then what is the main kind of uh, argument in this book? Instead of me telling the audience, I think it's better for you to explain it. And then I'll have some questions for you. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, thanks, Kadir, and, and thanks, uh, Seta, for uh, hosting this event, and, and thanks to all our participants today. As far as how the, the book came about, um, it was the result of some conversations um, that I had when I was in my previous job uh, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, here in Washington um, with um, the late um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was um, affiliated with CSIS and who had long been interested in kind of the long sweep of history and uh, who uh, was getting on with this idea that um, the, the idea of empire continued to matter. And of course, uh, Brzezinski uh, famously argued about uh, Ukraine, that without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be an empire. Uh, that it is, uh, you know, a territorially bounded, uh, if not nation state, then at least something uh, like it. And so, you know, whether or not uh, Russia controls Ukraine has this really enormous strategic significance. And in thinking about it and, and having some of these conversations, we realized that, of course, Russia is not the only post-imperial state in the world and even in, in the Eurasian landmass, which is sort of my area of, of specialization. Uh, and so in the course of some of these conversations with, with Dr. Brzezinski and, and with um, Dr. John Hamry, who's the, the president of CSIS, we, we talked about this a lot, decided that um, the best way to explore this topic was to uh, write a book about it. And um, these conversations were happening in 2015, 2016. So this was in the wake of the, the first Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, it was uh, with the upsurge of, of violence in Syria, uh, with the, the foreign powers, uh, Russia, but also Turkey and Iran uh, intervening in Syria. Uh, it was around the time that worries about China's uh, potential use of military force against Taiwan and, and in the South China Sea was heating up. So it was a time when there really seemed to be this kind of resurgence of, of imperial behavior on the part of states that uh, were themselves once the core uh, of old empires. And that was kind of the foundation for the book. In terms of what uh, the argument is, I guess, would say that if you look at these four states, 
both their internal construction and their foreign policy orientation is shaped by the fact that they emerged out of the collapse of these imperial structures, uh, which all happened in a pretty short period of time uh, in the early 20th century. And in at least three of these four states, so Turkey, Iran, and China, you had leaders uh, in the early 20th century who wanted to kind of do away with the imperial legacy, who wanted to create territorially bounded nation states uh, with a single uh, nation uh, inhabiting uh, this territory. And so they pushed for uh, linguistic, cultural, religious uh, assimilation. Um, they pulled back uh, from their engagement uh, outside of their borders and they really focused on kind of nation and state building at home. Uh, Russia was in a slightly different place because with the creation of the Soviet Union, on the one hand, there is a lot of anti-imperial rhetoric, um, but on the other hand, if you look at Soviet foreign policy, really from the very beginning, uh, it continued to have this imperial mindset in the sense that it sought to uh, expand borders, intervene uh, outside of its territory, conquer uh, other states and, and other peoples. And this aspiration led uh, to uh, the invasion of Poland uh, during the Russian Civil War. Uh, when that was defeated, there was this period uh, under Stalin, the emphasis on building what was called socialism in one country, so kind of downplaying some of these uh, imperial aspirations. But then with the Second World War, uh, we see them take off again. And the Second World War, of course, sees um, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, you know, the Soviet Union taking over um, the eastern part of Poland. And then uh, at the end of the Second World War, advancing its forces well into the heart of Europe and kind of creating this outer empire that goes all the way uh, to the Elba uh, in Berlin. Um, and it was only, you know, when the Soviet Union finally collapsed in the period, you know, from 1989 to 1991, that it begins pulling back first from this outer empire in Eastern Europe. And then um, a lot of the inner empire kind of breaks up as well. Uh, and you have the independence of states like Ukraine and Georgia and the, and the Baltic states. Even with that, though, Russia remains uh, in a lot of ways shaped by its imperial past. If you look at the ethnic and territorial makeup of the Russian Federation, uh, you know, you can see this. It's kind of a patchwork where you have these ethnic autonomies in places like Tatarstan, uh, Tuva, uh, not to mention the North Caucasus. Um, and the relationship of, of power in the center to these sort of peripheral regions is, is kind of layered and, and ever shifting. Um, and moreover, you know, the loss of territory outside the borders of the Russian Federation was not uh, accepted as permanent or legitimate by a large part of the Russian elite, which was a product of this imperial system. So ever since 1991, there's been this kind of push to regain elements of this of this empire on the part of, of the Russian political system. And of course, this has become much more pronounced, much more overt uh, just in the last couple of months uh, with a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But we've seen um, elements of this uh, approach, uh, particularly in the post-Soviet region, really going back to uh, just a couple of years after the, the collapse of, of the USSR in the first place. Um, and then again, you know, it's not just Russia, but you see kind of similar activities happening in, in China, Russia, uh, or I'm sorry, in China, uh, Turkey, and Iran. Um, and we can go through kind of the different cases if, if there's interest in that. I don't want to take too much time going through them. But there is this kind of sense uh, in all four of these states that in their current incarnations, they are the successors to these empires, that the imperial past provides a source of legitimacy. Uh, it also provides a vision for kind of the legitimate territorial extent uh, of what these states should be. And it provides a sense of, of grandeur, a sense that you know these aren't just normal states like other states, that they have some kind of, of special status and special role um, that they are seeking in, in various ways to, to reassert. Thank you for that, Jeffrey. So uh, let me start with a little bit of a, a pushback, if I may. So uh, while, yeah, I, I take the point that these all, all these four countries have imperial legacies and in their foreign policies, you're able to trace that really nicely. But isn't it still couched within the nation state framework? Like, is, is that a um, kind of contradiction in your mind or is it a complementary thing or 
you know, a lot of uh, uh, arguments had been made about Turkey and neo-Ottomanism and return of sort of imperial vision, etc. for instance, and for other countries too. But every time these countries take great sort of um, caution to ensure that whatever they're doing is within that nation state uh, sort of legitimacy realm, um, they will, you know, uh, participate in international organizations, the United Nations, etc. So uh, their relationships that they develop with these neighboring states uh, are often um, legitimized, justified, or kind of, um, you know, um, made clear in, in terms of the in existing international system that you, mm -hmm. you mentioned in the book, the rules-based order, yeah. right? Of course, mm -hmm. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an obvious uh, contradiction to this. But even then, Russia will, you know, couch it in terms of like a military operation, etc. So there's, why do they care that this is somehow, you know, couched or legitimized through mm -hmm. that international system? Is that, why is that happening? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can ignore the last century of history, right? Um, the, the old empire has collapsed um, and they were replaced by something else. Uh, and that something else is these kind of mixed systems that have bits of, you know, the imperial past kind of written into their DNA, but which, is op which are operating, particularly since 1945, in a world that is shaped around and that vests legitimacy in this idea of nation states. Um, and that's kind of the, the challenge here. And, in, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that part of the reason that these four countries, particularly three of them, uh, China, Iran, and, and Russia, are revisionist powers uh, is precisely because they're a bad fit for this system that's based on uh, nation states. Now, because that is the system, because that is kind of how legitimacy is, is constituted in the, in the modern era, they can't openly subvert it. They can't openly say, you know, we don't believe in the idea of nation states. Um, what they can do is act in ways that are not consonant with the existence of that system. And there is this kind of weird um, paradox, and, and this kind of gets to the, the question of historical memory uh, in these states, because they aspire to the status and in some cases borders uh, of the old empires. Um, but they think but the way that they discuss those empires uh, is very much through a kind of nation state or nationalist prism. Um, this is probably clearest when it comes to China actually, uh, because the, the CCP, the Chinese government, considers the borders of the old, Qing Empire that collapsed in, in 1911, you know, with the exception maybe of Mongolia, which is kind of a, a complicated case, as being the legitimate frontiers, uh, if you will, uh, not necessarily borders, but frontiers, and there's a difference, um, of modern China. But the difference is that the Qing, like all of these other uh, Eurasian empires, was heterogeneous, right? Um, the Qing ruling elite wasn't ethnically Chinese, they were ethnically Manchu, um, and they focused on the region known as Manchuria, which no longer really exists, it's been kind of integrated into the fabric of the Chinese state, as their homeland, and they maintain a distinct kind of ruling strategy in Manchuria, in Mongolia, in Tibet, uh, in, in the region that we call now Xinjiang, um, and then in kind of, the, you know, uh, what sometimes it's called China proper. Um, and so they managed to hold all of these territories together by ruling in very different fashions um, in all of them. And over the course of the 19th century, there is this push to kind of consolidate and sinicize um, their strategies for rule. And that was one of the things that drove rebellions uh, in some of these uh, areas, which affected to a greater or lesser degree of success, you know, broke away uh, when the Qing collapses in, in 1911. So today, when you have you know, Chinese nationalists who talk about sort of restoring uh, the Qing borders, 
they're not talking about restoring that kind of heterogeneous rule, right? They're not talking about, you know, kind of ruling through the institution of the Dalai Lama in Tibet, let's say, right? They're talking about creating a Chinese nation state within the borders of the old empire. And you see this to varying degrees in the other states uh, that are covered in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this kind of, of contradiction to it. It's like they, they want, as it were, the best of both worlds, right? They, they want the status and the, the size of the empires, but they don't want all the complexity and all of the uh, compromises that ruling that kind of a mm-hmm. uh, territory went along with. Thank you. So uh, if this is a return of the return of an age of empire like you say at the beginning of the book um, and you say that this presents challenges for the quote-unquote rules-based international order that is promoted by the United States um, again um, how do you conceive of um, U.S. role the global role the, mm-hmm. you know, some would argue U.S. is an imperial now right yes. uh, yeah not imperialist in the sense, but it's an empire through, you know, alliances, through economic influence, through, Mm -hmm. you know, military installations all around the globe uh, Mm -hmm. with its own perhaps backyard near abroad. Uh, Mm -hmm. So all these things you talk about, these four major powers, um, Mm -hmm. just to be the devil's advocate, I can argue the same thing for for, Mm -hmm. um, the United States. Would you say in that, framework can i say so the empire of now is up against uh, these imperial legacies of of these other four nations how would you kind of contrast this these um nations with imperial pasts and their foreign policies are shaped by that not determined uh, i i think you were careful with that word it's shaped by that but at the same time there is a international system uh, sort of promoted, brokered by the United States that claims to be a rules-based international order. Yeah. Well, look, I I don't think that you can deny that the United States has played an imperial role at large portions of its history. Uh, Westward expansion, um, the eradication of Native American culture, the conquest of Hawaii and the the Pacific Islands. I mean, all of these look very much like what traditional empires do. Um, The historian uh, Daniel Immerwar has a book uh, called How to Hide an Empire, and it's kind of an imperial history of American foreign policy. Um, And it's a story that you know, the United States and, and American scholars don't necessarily like to talk about, but, it, but it's very much there. Um, I think when it comes to the rules-based international order, um, and I should say that that is not a term that I, I use in the book, um, at least I think I maybe use it once in, in scare quotes. Yeah. Um, that is based on a set of principles um, that were largely consolidated at the end of the Cold War um, and that were organized largely by the United States uh, and largely as a means of securing its own int- its own influence within the international system. And that contract, there, there's a tension, I guess, between the rules themselves and influence, the influence of the United States, which is at the center of that system. The U.S. advanced these rules because it thought that these rules would help uh, secure its influence within the system. But of course, that isn't always the case. And sometimes securing influence means going against these rules. Um, and I guess if you were to be cynical about it, you know, you could say that the, the position of the United States government, and I should also add here that I am speaking in my personal capacity and that none of my remarks you know, uh, reflect the views of, of the Department of Defense, National Defense University or the US government, um, that at times you know, the US can act in ways that are at odds with the rules of the system that it claims to uphold. And that I think is, is just a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but for uh, the US, when other states uh, similarly act in ways that are uh, not consonant with those rules, uh, it poses a problem, uh, in part because, you know, even in, in despite the, the violations, I think the US in general believes that these rules are valuable uh, for the kind of world that they create. 
um, but also because you know when other countries are, are violating them, um, then that is a challenge not just to the rules per se, but also to U.S. influence within the system. Really. So, would you say then, um, sort of Cold War was rather an exceptional period in that remark that kind of put a uh, gave these countries a sort of break from uh, searching for their imperial. Uh, souls or pasts or mm -hmm. le le legacies where you know yeah. you had to be in one camp or the other or you have to be a third you know so um how 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 do you think cold war uh, mm -hmm. impacted the these legacies the practice of these imperial legacies or reformulation of these legacies yeah that's a really good question. And I think it, it it differs a little bit among the the cases here. So, you know, for Turkey and Iran, which were sort of medium-sized powers uh, that were being buffeted by uh, the interactions of the larger states in this Cold War context, I think, you know, the way you described it is pretty is pretty accurate that, you know, they were forced to, uh, kind of trim their sails in terms of, you know, their their external engagements in order to uh, secure themselves uh, in a very competitive, uh, dangerous uh, system, um, and in part, you know, that meant also focusing on internal unity. Uh, both Turkey and Iran were very worried about um, internal fractures and how you know diversity, um, ethnic minorities could be you know, used in this superpower competition as a way of destabilizing them. Um, and so in both countries, you really had this emphasis on uh, unity, on building national unity, on creating sort of national mythology uh, as a way of, of internal consolidation. Um, China is kind of a, a borderline case, I think, where you had elements of that, but especially after the, the um, uh, the, the takeover by the CCP in, in 1949, that kind of competes with, you know, this desire to, to play a larger role, to, you know, break away from uh, Soviet tutelage after a while and to sort of reposition China as a, as a global power. Now, in doing that, you know, it, it's not so much the, the legacy of the Qing, let's say, that, that Mao and, and the CCP are pursuing. You know, I think they have an imperial vision of China, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily shaped by trying to restore the, the borders of, of the Qing Empire. Um, you know, it is kind of focused on positioning China at the center of an alternative uh, regional and possibly global order, you know, really kind of pivoting to the non-aligned world, uh, offering, you know, an ideological alternative to um, the Soviet model after destalinization sets in. Um, but, you know, so, so playing a, a quasi-imperial role, but um, one that is, uh, you know, less directly tied to, to the Qing legacy. And then in, in the Soviet Union, I, I do think that of the four cases I discuss in the book, you know, the Soviet Union slash Russia uh, is the one that remained the most sort of overtly imperial. Um, and again, you know, we have this period of imperial expansion that goes on. Uh, up through the end of the Second World War. Um, and then, you know, maybe you could argue 1979 and the invasion of Afghanistan was, was motivated by kind of similar uh, considerations. But during the, the second half of the Soviet era, you know, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, I think there's uh, what my, uh, my mentor Paul Kennedy talked about as uh, imperial overstretch. The Soviet Union is overcommitted uh, in so many of these places. And instead of pushing outward and trying to, you know, incorporate new territories, it, it, it's fighting this kind of rearguard action to hold on to what it has. And you see this in all of the, um, the interventions that, that it undertakes to put down uh, rebellions or uh, revolts in, in Eastern Europe, you know, in, in Hungary in 1956, in Czechoslovakia in 1968, um, and then dealing with solidarity in, in Poland in the 1980s. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think there is this kind of 
effort at sort of imperial management, um, but just given the realities of power and the fact that the Soviet Union, certainly by the 70s, is clearly falling behind economically and, and militarily vis-a-vis -vis the West, you know, is it's, it's not in a position to pursue some of these um, more expansive uh, ideas of, of, of empire. Jeffrey, um, so you, when you talk about imperial legacies for these nations, um, perhaps we should, I would like to remind the um, sort of audiences that you don't say this only as, you don't list it as, a, as an advantage all, all mm -hmm. the time right yeah what are the disadvantages contradictions that it creates challenges it creates for these states while mm -hmm. you know their vision their imagination could be uh much larger than their sort of national borders right. and that could be a good thing in terms of developing relations exerting influence playing a larger role in the international system but at the same time it can create uh sort of hazards or disadvantages uh mm -hmm. strategic retreats you mentioned one thing about you know imperial overreach uh can you give us a couple of examples of the the difficulties that brings mm -hmm. along with it sure i mean i think we can look at the war in ukraine as being you know one of these um you know i i, I think russia and the Russian leadership and, and Vladimir Putin in particular has been completely unable to grapple with the idea of Ukrainianness, of, of a separate Ukrainian identity and, and the reality of a Ukrainian nation and a Ukrainian state. And so Russia's relationship to Ukraine uh, remains fundamentally imperial, um, but most Ukrainians, and I would argue even fewer Ukrainians since um, February 24th uh, view the relationship in, in those terms. And it's become clear that Ukrainians don't want to live under Russian suzerainty or hegemony um, and are willing to fight uh, to maintain their independence. And so Russia seems now to have you know, decided that the only way that it's going to kind of maintain uh, power and influence in Ukraine is through direct military intervention. And of course, we see the tragedy that that um, is unleashing. I think even, you know, outside that extreme case, you can make the argument, one, that this kind of imperial mindset uh, creates problems uh, with neighboring states that don't have uh, a desire to be brought back under the rule of an imperial hegemon. Uh, you know, look at the resistance to Iranian influence that there is in, in Iraq, uh, in Lebanon, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, kind of all around the region where Iran is kind of playing this uh, imperial card. And it also creates domestic pressures, uh, especially because empire is expensive. And I mean, this is one of the reasons that the, the European overseas empires eventually uh, collapsed. It, it, maintaining that kind of imperial rule just was beyond the, the financial and administrative capacities of, of these states. And I think that, you know, Iran uh, and Russia especially um, are, are figuring that out now. And, you know, the standard of living in both countries uh, is uh, not improving. And in Russia, since the sanctions were imposed uh, more recently, it's, it's declining pretty precipitously. But there is this kind of tension between, you know, spending resources to you know, build up the military, to focus on, you know, restoring uh, greatness in the international system, and then focusing on just trying to provide a better life for your citizens. And I think, you know, and maybe this is my American bias here, but that, uh, you know, all of these places would be better off if they focus more on, on the latter and less on the former. Yeah. Thank you. I want to ask you, we have some questions from the audience before I turn to them. I just have, uh, it's a very interesting book, by the way. Uh, again, uh, everybody should buy it and read it. It's a very good comparative study. Uh, how do they manage competition among them, right? These yeah. are four major powers, uh, mm -hmm. middle powers, major powers with some global role, global aspiration with imperial legacies, and they border each other. So how do they manage, let's say, uh, you know, 
frictions among them. Yeah, so the, the way I talk about it in the book is that there's a, a tension between kind of the way they approach the problem at the global level and then at, within their own sort of shared neighborhood. So again, all of these states have in common this imperial DNA, if you want to call it that. And in their interventions abroad are pushing to make what I call in, in the book, a world safe for empire. That is to legitimate the kind of cross-border power projection that all four of them uh, are engaged in. And so they basically accept one another's right and ability to, to engage in that kind of power projection. Um, but in areas where their interests intersect, uh, the relationship is competitive. And you see this you know, in a place like Syria, where you've got Russia, Turkey and Iran you know, all kind of involved. Um, and you have this very complicated uh, dance that goes on uh, among the three of them. Um, on the one hand, you know, Russia and Iran are aligned um, and yet they're rivals. Uh, you know, Russia coordinates with the Israelis to carry out uh, strikes against Iranian targets uh, in Syria, uh, even though Russia and Iran have been on the same side of this conflict uh, really since it began. Uh, Turkey's on the opposite side, or it was, you know, in the beginning at least, um, but nevertheless, and I should say, um, has engaged in, in direct uh, conflict uh, with both Russian and, and Iranian uh, assets, you know, most notably with Russia. In, in um, February 2020, there was uh, a Russian airstrike that killed 30 plus Turkish soldiers uh, in the vicinity of Idlib. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you have this mechanism uh, the Astana framework, where Russian, Turkish, and Iranian uh, officials, you know, going up to the, the very highest level, uh, engage in these regular consultations to try and manage their, um, their uh, interactions in Syria. And in doing that, you know, they're engaged in a very classically imperial kind of, of bargaining where, you know, there are trade-offs and spheres of influence uh, and, you know, informal rules of the game uh, that all of them uh, adhere to. So all of them kind of accept the principle that the others are going to be there and that they, you know, have, if not a right, then you know, the reality is that they're going to be there. Um, and they're trying to work uh, on that basis. Uh, even if the relationship among them on the ground remains uh, competitive, which is different from how, say, the United States views it, which is they would like for all of the foreign powers to get out. Mm. Okay. Um, thanks for that. Uh, I think it was interesting, you know, you, you described these various moments of relationships between these countries uh, in the South Caucasus, for example, um, in the Balkans, uh, when, you know, there are these competing imperial legacies in, in some ways. Um, so, um, and I asked you about my, uh, I, I have a notes here that um, I want to ask you about these shatter zones uh, mm -hmm. you talk about, and these could be inside the border or across the border. And we are seeing that all around. Uh, can you talk about that a bit when, when you talk about these shatter zones and how that plays into this? I mean, what it can tell us also for the near future or, you know, I don't want you to try to predict, but these yeah. zones of, you know, these zones of conflict, uh, they, you know, we tend to take it as anomaly. We try to solve it right mm -hmm. away, but you see a more systematic you know, uh, thing going on under this uh, concept of shatter zone. I th that's how I yeah. read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I borrowed this concept of shatter zones from uh, a historian named Alfred Reber, mm -hmm. um, who talks about um, the competition for influence in the Eurasian borderlands as being kind of this enduring uh, feature of, of international relations in this in this space. And I think if you look at the at the patterns, you know, he, he's largely right about that. Um, and it's the same, you know, areas at the interstices between these imperial cores that have been the focal point for competition among them um, and where there's frequently been, you know, instability of, of various kinds, rebellions, mm -hmm. um, wars uh, and the like. 
And, you know, there were periods uh, where you had sort of consolidated imperial control where there was less of this. So the South Caucasus was, you know, a, a rather violent uh, region for much of its history because it was at the intersection of the, the Ottoman and the Persian and the, the Russian empires. Um, and, you know, that lasted up through the First World War. Uh, and then, you know, the consolidation of Soviet control, um, that kind of violence, you know, died down. It's sparked up again during the Second World War and Stalin deported, you know, the Chechens and, and many of the other um, populations of the Caucasus to Central Asia. Um, at the end of the war, you know, again, Soviet control kind of returns and you've got this heavy hand that is keeping uh, a lid on to mix metaphors. Um, but then with the collapse of the Soviet Union, this, this region kind of reemerges as a shatter zone where you have multiple interests um, competing for influence, including uh, domestic actors of various kinds. You know, you have Chechen separatists, you have, um, you know, various nationalist movements in other parts of the North Caucasus. Uh, you have separatists in uh, regions like Abkhazia, uh, which is uh, legally part of Georgia. Um, and then, you know, these local um, conflicts are uh, overlaid by the strategic competition between the larger uh, imperial powers. Um, so, you know, you've got um, uh, Turkey has a connection with uh, the Chechen rebels uh, during the first Chechen war. Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, Russia is engaged in its own games with uh, the PKK uh, in Turkey, which is another actor in, in one of these, these shatter zones. Um, and uh, you, you don't have a kind of lasting um, peace or, or stability uh, in these regions because of all of these competing uh, interests, competing actors. Um, I would argue that, you know, the expansion of, of NATO and the European Union was largely uh, predicated on the idea of trying to bring peace and stability uh, in what had historically been one of these shatter zones uh, in Eastern Europe and, and the Balkans. Um, and it had, you know, some success, um, but uh, it wasn't final. And, you know, today, the areas that remain uh, on the margins of NATO and the EU in the Western Balkans, Ukraine, Moldova, uh, remain very much part of these shatter zones and remain uh, areas where there is instability driven by this combination of internal uh, competition and the overlain by uh, the strategic rivalries of, of the major players. Uh, your response reminded me why I asked the question uh, <laughs> in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. in t you know, we often talk about, let's say, frozen conflict. Uh, it our memory tends to be 20, 30 years, but right. your book traces these back and says, okay, you know, Crimea, right? It's, yeah. There's a long history there. Caucasus right. is a long history. Uh, the Middle East for, for Iran, how it tries to, it plays a role in Iraq. That has a long mm -hmm. history. So yeah. uh, I took it as yeah, a historian, <laughs> as a historian, I really enjoyed that, those reminders. Uh, yeah, no, I was going to say that, you know, the, the, the Ottomans and the Safavids were, were fighting over Iraq in the 16th century. Yeah, exactly. um, And, you know, the frontiers of, of control shifted back and forth. And, you know, again, with the Caucasus, right? I mean, um, there was a long rebellion uh, against the imposition of Russian rule. And, you know, you could argue that the, the instability in the North Caucasus today is, is driven by many of the same structures and the same factors that contributed to uh, that resistance against the imposition of Russian rule going back to 18th, 19th centuries. Empire continues. <laughs> yes. um, uh, so there's a question. There are several questions from the audience. Let me take those and then um, I might have more questions for you. Um, Michael Kurtzig is asking, has anything changed in the zeal towards empire and imperialism with the history of nuclear weapons? Putin seems to believe that he could use those, something completely crazy, but still possible? Question mark. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's a whole debate in, in the field of international relations about the impact of, of nuclear weapons. Um, 
and you know you have one group of scholars that say you know, major power war is not possible uh, in the modern world because of nuclear weapons uh, and the recognition on all sides that any conflict between major powers, between nuclear armed powers, uh, has the risk of escalating to nuclear exchange and therefore rational leaders are not going to engage in it. There's another group um, that talks about something called the stability instability paradox, which is this idea that because there's this recognition um, that conflict uh, can escalate to, uh, to nuclear war, um, and that uh, because the, the consequences of nuclear war would be so devastating, uh, major powers are not going to use nuclear weapons. Um, and therefore, um, they're free to fight below the nuclear threshold because they know that it would be crazy for the other side to yeah. escalate to yeah. nuclear use. Um, fortunately, we haven't had a lot of uh, data to test either of these hypotheses because there hasn't been much major power war uh, since 1945. Um, you know, now, uh, one of the reasons I think the war in Ukraine is so uh, dangerous um, is because it is, in a lot of ways, a direct clash uh, between major nuclear armed powers. Uh, so far, uh, you know, you have the army of one nuclear armed power directly involved, uh, and you have other nuclear armed powers, uh, the United States, Britain, and France, um, very openly uh, supporting uh, a, a rival power. And I think, you know, if you read what's coming out of the Kremlin, uh, the belief uh, in Moscow is that uh, Russia can engage in this nakedly imperial war of conquest because it's protected by its nuclear arsenal. Uh, because, you know, Russia knows that uh, Russia can effectively deter uh, military intervention on the part of, of the Western powers. Um, so far, uh, that has uh, held true up to a point. Uh, I don't think the Russian leadership anticipated the degree of, of uh, military support that the US and its allies have given to Ukraine uh, or the uh, severity of the sanctions that have been uh, imposed. Um, so far, I think the belief in, in Moscow is still that this war can be won through conventional means. Uh, the longer the conflict goes on, uh, I think the less likely that becomes. Um, and as it becomes less likely, uh, if the, the Russian leadership comes to believe that it can't achieve its imperial ends uh, because it's being uh, thwarted uh, by Ukraine and by uh, the West, you know, does it turn to uh, various unconventional uh, tools. You know, we mentioned nuclear weapons, but Russia also has chemical, biological uh, weapons, and it has the ability to, to escalate horizontally as well. Uh, so this is a very dangerous uh, conflict. Um, I think the likelihood of it escalating to, to nuclear use is low, um, but low isn't the same as zero. Yeah, thank you. There's another question. Do you also see religious imperialism as part of the new order? For example, Iran's mm -hmm. aim, aim at a Shia crescent from Tehran to Beirut and to Gaza and further, and world terrorism, it says. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, if you read the book, um, I talk about this a lot uh, with Iran um, because, you know, I, I think that the driving force behind Iran's kind of imperial vision um, is, uh, I should say, behind the imperial vision of the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, is, you know, a, a kind of uh, politicized version of Shiism uh, associated, uh, above all, with Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, and that it is through uh, religious uh, institutions, religious networks, uh, that Iran is seeking to project power uh, outside of its borders. Um, and so on the one hand, yes, you know, Iran provides support for Sunni groups, um, particularly those that uh, are focused on fighting Israel. 
um, but the emphasis uh, is very sectarian. Uh, and uh, the focus uh, for Iranian power projection abroad is really um, Shiite parties uh, and militias, of which Hezbollah is, is the, the most notable. Uh, but Hezbollah is also kind of a model uh, for what Iran seeks to uh, establish elsewhere uh, among Shiite populations um, and kind of melding these Shiite populations together into a, into a single um, what you might call a political imaginary so that people you know think of themselves as being shiite and in thinking of themselves as being shiite associate themselves with the, the outlook and the political objectives uh, of tehran um it's been uh quite successful uh iran is by far the weakest of the four uh powers that i cover and yet in a lot of ways um it has succeeded in entrenching itself uh, outside its borders uh, in a number of different places through its patronage and support for uh, these kind of, of Shiite uh, organizations. Um, with the other uh, three states, I think you see the, the religious factor playing um, varying roles. Uh, certainly in Russia, uh, the, the Russian Orthodox Church has become uh, a pillar of, of uh, Putin's sort of imperial vision. Um, it is, I should say, an imperial church uh, in the sense that it doesn't uh, confine itself to the borders of the Russian Federation. Um, its so-called canonical territory uh, extends beyond Russia. Um, one of the big milestones in Ukraine's development as an independent state and, and separation from Russia uh, was the creation of a separate Ukrainian Orthodox Church, uh, which was granted uh, canonical status by uh, the Ecumenical Patriarch uh, only in 2018. Um, but and, you know this struggle over whether you know the Ukrainian sort of Orthodox um, milieu uh, is part of this Russian world or not uh, is is very much a piece uh, of the struggle. Uh, at the same time, the Russian Orthodox Church and various oligarchs and media properties affiliated with it um, have been really instrumental in propagating a vision uh, of so-called conservative of uh, so-called traditional values. Uh, which uh, are designed to resonate not only uh, among Orthodox populations in, in Russia and the former Soviet space, but um, to some degree in, in, in the West and, and in the Global South uh, as well. Uh, so you have, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church playing a big role in, in movements like the, uh, the World Council of Families, which is, you know, one of these groups that's designed to bring together uh, sort of right-wing uh, Christian organizations uh, from a, a variety of backgrounds and sort of uh, get them on the same page with Russia's vision uh, of the world. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I think... Yeah, the Iran discussion was uh, was very good, and and there is a moment there uh, with the, right after the revolution, Khomeini take uh, you know takes great pains to make sure that you know they don't come across as Iranian nationalist or Shia imperialism, etc. But you kind of point out that the war with Iraq kind of uh, starts starts pushing them to go back to imperial legacy in many ways, I guess. Um, so one question is, a, um, it says, Eurasian nation states have been composite empires for extended periods. How can other nation states, some of them outcomes of imperial disintegration, sustain their territori in territorial integrity as a rules-based system is gradually eroded? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a challenge. Um, I think um, part of, up until the, the current war, uh, Ukraine actually offers uh, a, a pretty good model for, for how to do this, which is that, especially since the, the Maidan uh, in 2013-2014, Ukraine has made a lot of progress in building a sense of civic identity. Um, that is, people uh, identify as Ukrainian, not based on which church they belong to or even which language they speak, um, but based on the fact that they are citizens of this state, which uh, is, has focused on, uh, you know, providing equality and equal rights uh, for, for all uh, Ukrainian citizens. Um, and I think this um, pivot to, to sort of focusing on civic nationalism or civic patriotism uh, has caught a lot of uh, even fairly sophisticated observers uh, off guard, 
because there is still a lot of discussion about, you know, oh, um, you know, discrimination against Russian speakers in Ukraine or, or you know, whatever it is. Um, and I, I just don't think that, that that's the case. I, I don't think that you can sort of map political attitudes in a country like Ukraine on the basis of language. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, 20 years ago, could you do that? Yes. Um, but more and more, uh, I think the, the success in kind of building this idea of Ukraine as a modern um, democratic uh, social welfare state that provides for all of its citizens, irrespective of their ethnic, linguistic, or religious identity, um, has been pretty successful. Um, that is not necessarily easy to do. Uh, I think in, in all countries, uh, there are ethnic or religious or linguistic fissures um, that political entrepreneurs can seize on uh, as a path to uh, seeking power. Uh, this is what uh, Slobodan Milosevic did uh, in Yugoslavia, uh, sort of recognized that he could uh, mobilize Serbian grievance uh, as a way to advance his own political fortunes. And of course, we see how that, that process ended. Um, I think you see it with the rise of, of uh, white nationalism in, in the United States um, and in some European countries. Um, so it, it, it's a challenge, and I think even in long-established democracies, it, it's not easy uh, to build and, and sort of reinforce this idea of civic patriotism. Uh, but I think it's the best bet that uh, vulnerable countries like Ukraine uh, and others have uh, at securing themselves from both internal fracture and external um, intervention. Your response again reminded me of two things from your book. One is the instance where, you know, Ukrainian po portions of the Ukrainian army in Crimea kind of switches sides, defects. Uh, and then you have Russian speaking uh, Ukrainian citizens who are fighting against Russia. As mm -hmm. So in terms of national loyalties uh, and the feeling of belonging, I guess, that's not an assured thing for either a nation state or an imperial project. In, yeah. Yeah. Identities are, identities are fluid. And I think the way that people think about themselves and think about their community, where they belong, uh, changes over time. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at I mean, Eastern Europe is, is a great example of this because the borders have shifted so many times uh, over the course of, of the 20th century. You know, a single town uh, can be uh, part of a different state, you know, every few years. I mean, take uh, Lviv, for instance, right? I mean, Lviv has four different names, right? It is Lemberg, it was Lviv, uh, it was Lvov, and now it's Lviv. Um, and that's because of the fact that the borders kept shifting and, and the city was in, you know, all of these different states at different times. And, you know, the shifting of borders, especially during war, often meant ethnic cleansing and meant people were expelled. But for a lot of people, the people who were able to stay, right, you know, you can, you or maybe your children at least can kind of adapt. They can sort of shift how they, they think about themselves. And there's this, I think scholars have kind of, you know, moved beyond the idea that ethnic identities are fixed. But there is this assumption um, that uh, exists, and I think journalists are often guilty of, of propagating this idea that you know ethnic identities are, are permanent and unchanging, um, and that they're this sort of biological uh, thing. When in fact they're not, and they're very much uh, the product of, of political contingencies and, and how people choose to think about themselves. Jeffrey, I, um, it's a very rich book. Uh, again, Empires of Eurasia. Um, I want to ask you one last question. Um, so, you know, in the literature for a while, it was like, don't forget nationalism. There's rise of nationalism. Nation states are important and Westphalian, you know, system. It, it, and then now we're also, this has been a debate for a while, like the return of empires, we have to pay attention to imperial legacies, etc. Um, how do you reconcile those? Maybe we can end with the Turkey example, Turkey example. Um, you know, a country like, like you mentioned in the book, Iran, Turkey, Turkey, uh, China made these, made these clear decisions to go for a nation state, 
and mm-hmm. Russia has, you know, it, it has always resembled much more of an empire, uh, mm-hmm. even in the Cold War. Um, and then you mentioned actually that, you know, the uh, Soviets, how they treated their ethnicities actually enabled those identities, the Ukrainian identity uh, and others uh, perhaps approach uh, nation state, um, national uh, conceptions of identity. But uh, again, going back to the Turkey example, here you have uh, the demise of an empire and then out of that and mm-hmm. nation state emerges. And now, according to your book, your analysis, um, its foreign policy is shaped by uh, its imperial legacy imagination. Uh, how would you reconcile like the nation states and imperial p- legacies? You know, neither of, we can't say one is done. It's time is right. you know history is not <laughs> um, you know is not uh, finished on that front. Uh, no, history is never finished. What's that? History is never finished. No, I meant like the history of nation states or history of empires. We, we are not able to say that, you know, okay, it's we are not going to see empires anymore, right? According to, so, uh, sorry, I made this too long, but how do you reconcile those competing uh, structures? Yeah, well, I, I think building nation states was a project uh, that uh, really began in the 19th century and, and then uh, accelerated in the 20th century. Um, but it, in a lot of places, was never a completed project. Uh, and in especially big, complicated countries like uh, the four that I cover in the book, um, it was completed to a lesser degree than it was uh, elsewhere. Um, you know, a lot of modern nation states uh, started off as empires or something like them. Um, you know, France. Uh, for instance, right? I mean, you used to have, um, you know, all of these different regions, you know, Burgundians and um, uh, Catalans and Bretons and and all the rest, right? And it was only through sort of a process of conquest and assimilation that, uh, you know, uh, peasants were turned into into Frenchmen, as uh, the the historian Eugen Weber put it. Um, you had a similar process, a similar project that was undertaken by leaders like Ataturk uh, and by uh, the Pahlavi uh, Shahs uh, in Iran. And they made some progress uh, in this direction. Um, I mean, if you take uh, Turkey today, right, I mean, um, the population is um, very heavily uh, Muslim, uh, heavily Turkish speaking. Um, in a way that, you know, Ottoman Anatolia was not. Um, But uh, at the same time, uh, that process uh, was never completed. Uh, And I think especially in in the Turkish case, because you had um, a significant subset of the population that uh, kind of rejected the legitimacy of the whole nation state project um, and kind of aspired to um, recover uh, what was lost with the collapse of, of the empire. Um, that process, you know, it, it kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, and in the in the 21st century, um, groups that have uh, that sort of grew out of of the part of of Turkish society that uh, fought with the establishment of the nation state have been more influential. Um, and there's been a greater emphasis on uh, recovering some of these uh, subsumed imperial legacies. So you have both of these things there in the mix um, and how they balance and how they uh, interact with one another, I think, changes over time. Jeffrey, I said last question, but I, there's an audience question. Would you mm-hmm. take 30 seconds, perhaps very quickly? How does Central Asia's own historical memory interact with the nostalgic mm-hmm. recollections of the surrounding imperial powers you discuss in the book. Is there a conflict between Central Asia's nostalgia for Bukhara or Timur, or are the identities compatible? Yeah. Um, so I don't think we can talk about Central Asia as being a, a single thing, right? There, there, there's lots of populations and states and 
groups in Central Asia that I think have their own trajectories and, and their own histories. Um, the, the legacy of Timur and sort of how that gets operationalized in the modern world is super, super complicated. Um, Timur has become kind of the avatar of Uzbek identity. Uh, this was a, a particular project of, of uh, former President Karimov, uh, who, you know, made uh, Timur out to be kind of the, you know, the founder of, of you know, of Uzbek identity. Yeah. Um, he, he was nothing of the, of the like, right? I mean, he was a, a, a conqueror uh, who the language he spoke uh, was actually more like uh, Kazakh than Uzbek. Um, so it's... You know, I think these nation states try to take uh, this imperial past and shoehorn it into something smaller uh, and more homogenous than the reality was. It was the same thing I was talking about before with China, where, you know, there's this idea that we should regather uh, these territories that were part of the Qing, um, but we want to shoehorn them into the idea of a Chinese nation state. Um, and I think, you know, with the, under Karimov, with the, the kind of cult of Timur uh, in Uzbekistan, it was kind of a similar thing. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Um, I think um, it's a very nice book, uh, very well researched and well discussed. Uh, if you want to trace some of the uh, current conflicts around these nations and uh, understand their history and what it means for these countries, I think it's a great discussion. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you very much for this book talk. I want to thank our audience and those who followed us on social media as well. Uh, hope to see you all uh, on another occasion. Uh, congratulations again, Jeffrey. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Kadir, and, and thanks to everybody who joined us today. Thanks. Bye-bye.